Okay, so I'm going to start reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. And you can look along with me. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in the body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. I'd now like to invite Rowan Kemp to come up and speak to us from this passage. Thanks, Matt. Good to see you here at this EU public meeting. So we're talking today about spiritual sex. Now, you've come to a Christian meeting and as soon as Christians start to talk about sex, you've got to think, is there anything more stereotyped than that? As soon as Christians get up to talk about sex, there's an immediate assumption that our secular world makes. It goes something like this, I think. You Christians are so prudish. You're ultra-conservatives living in the Victorian era. You have taken all the fun out of life. You're anti-sex and you're anti-fun. You have all these hang-ups about our bodies and about sex, which frankly is sad, it's stupid and it's ironic because where do you think you came from anyway? Frankly, what you need to do is just go and have sex with someone, anyone. Then you'll get over all this pent-up angst and you'll see that sex is just not that big a deal. In fact, it's really good. The truth is, you're probably all having sex anyway. It's all just empty rhetoric about purity and it's just making you all feel guilty. So, move on, get over it. That's the sort of line I think we hear as Christians quite, quite often uh, from the media or intimated on campus from our friends, even from our family. But in the first place, it's just inaccurate. It seems hopelessly repetitive to say at one level, but Christians, if they're informed by the Bible, are not anti-sex, just the opposite actually. The Christian Bible teaches that God is the good creator, he created sex, and so sex is good. And there's a whole book of the Old Testament, the Song of Songs, devoted to celebrating the sexual love of a man and his wife. It's a fairly racy, bracing read, if you've ever read it. God's created us as sexual beings with sexual urges, sexual desires and sexual passions and that's good. But the Bible also teaches us that God has created us as human beings with freedom. We choose how we're going to live in his world and it teaches us that our tendency is to use the freedom that he's given us tragically to distort 
sometimes to misuse, sometimes to misdirect and even to just straight out abuse the good things that he's given us. That's true of how we treat the environment, that's true often of how we treat one another and it's true how we treat sex. But I don't think that's a terribly controversial point. I think most people will agree, whether or not they're a Christian, that there is such a thing as bad sex, that is sex beyond the bounds of what is acceptable. Any case of sexual abuse surely would fall into that sort of category or pedophilia or what about the horrors of rape? Sex certainly isn't all bad but there certainly is bad sex. So the question then is for us, I think, where do you draw the line between good sex and bad sex? How do you know when you crossed over? What is appropriate? What's helpful? What's beneficial when it comes to sex and what's not? And then at a deeper level, I guess, how are we going to work that out? Now, you've got those questions in mind. Just pause. I'm going to go all a bit meta for a moment, right? Let me point out what's going on in those questions. We're starting with an ethical question. What is appropriate, helpful, right? In this case, we're thinking about sex. What's good sex? What's bad sex? But underneath that, as I said, there, there must always be a epistemological question. Epistemology, it just means um, a theory of knowledge, how you know stuff, right? So we have our ethical question, what's going to be helpful, right, appropriate? But then we've got a deeper question, how are we going to work out what the answer is to that question? That's the epistemological question you've got to answer first. Now, we could answer that epistemological question in lots of different ways. We could try and answer it via psychological research, see what the psychologists tell us about what's good sex, bad sex. We could answer it in terms of maybe sexual or mental health. We could answer it actually by Darwinian evolutionary theory, what's good sex or bad sex. We could answer it just by taking a random sample of the campus and asking people about their experiences and just pull all the data together and say, get the statisticians to tell us what's good sex or bad sex. But because this is an evangelical union meeting where we have a commitment to the Bible as the inspired word of God to us, to this world, we're going to seek to answer the ethical question about sex from the Christian scriptures. What does God reveal through this particular book, the Bible, about sex? Now, as Matt said, the reason that we're talking about this today is because over the last few weeks we've been working through a letter in the Christian New Testament known as 1 Corinthians. Uh, The Apostle Paul, who was the writer of the letter, he has had to uh, pull up this church of God in Corinth because it had walked all sorts of worldly values into their church community. They'd walked in all these sort of behaviours and values that were worldly and didn't belong in the church of God. And in chapter 5, he turns his attention to their sexual ethics. Uh, If you read chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, you'll find there that there's a guy in the church, apparently, who is sleeping with his mother-in-law, which is all pretty icky, and they were apparently all fine with it, which is also sort of might raise a few eyebrows. And Paul actually has to write to this bunch of Christians and say, no, not fine. This is not fine for the person concerned and it's not fine for for the community of God, for the church of God. This sort of sexual immorality is not fine. So in chapter 5 he tells them what they should do about that and you can read that later at at your leisure. Then in chapter 6, which is where we're focusing today, 
Paul widens out his focus from just that one particular incident that had taken place in the church to their more general approach to sexual behaviour that they were displaying. And his message is really summed up in two places in this little section that we had read out for us. It's summed up in the beginning of verse 18 and the end of verse 20. If you pull those two verses together, you get this. His message basically is, flee sexual immorality, or porneia, but I'll explain that in a moment. And then in verse 20, instead they should glorify God with their body. This is his basic message. Flee sexual immorality as a Christian and instead, as Christians, glorify God with your body. Well, why? Why should they do this? Well, first of all, I need to just explain porneia. The reason I put porneia up there on the, on the board is because that's the sort of the, the word that Paul used when he wrote this letter. That's the Greek word. And just so we're clear, porneia covers a, um, a whole range of sexual relationships. Basically, a way of understanding it, it is, it's any sort of prohibited sexual relationship. That's what porneia means, a prohibited sexual relationship. It comes from the same root Greek word that we would get the word pornography from. So the sort of sexual relationships that are covered by porneia uh, include things like any sex outside of the male-female marriage, uh, it includes adultery, it includes homosexual sex, it includes incest, sex with animals, sex with dead people. God's message to the Corinthians through Paul was you've got to flee any and all of these prohibited sexual relationships. Don't stuff about with them. Don't, you know linger alongside them, flee from them, run away from them and instead what you should do as a Christian is glorify God with your body. So why are they to do this? Well, when I read through this sort of section here, as I can count it, Paul gives eight different reasons why they should flee porneia and they should instead glorify God with their body. So before we're going to whiz through those eight reasons, I just want to return for a moment to our dummy's guide to ethics, right, which I put on the, the screen before, because I want to fill out that picture of how to think ethically as a Christian um, and then try. you'll see then how that framework gets uh, reflected in some of the things that Paul says in this passage. So when we use the Bible as our epistemological foundation, because we're reading the Bible... There are two particular things that the Bible encourages us to think about if we want to answer an ethical question. It gives us two intermediate questions to ask in order to answer the ethical question. So what are the two sort of areas that the Bible wants us to think about when it comes to ethics? Well, the first one is nature. The Bible often encourages us to think about and to ask what sort of thing is this that you're asking the question about? So in our case, we're talking about sex, right? What sort of thing is sex? But it's not just sex, right? As we'll see in this, sex involves our bodies, unsurprisingly, right? So it's also we have to ask, what, what, what is my body? And if I've become a Christian person, what does that mean for my body? What, what is my body now that I've become a Christian? And even more deeply, I guess, who am I as a, as a Christian? Now that I've become a Christian, what is the nature of being a Christian? What does that mean? So it encourages you to ask this nature question or if you like to get all fancy-pantsy and impress your friends, that the ontological question, which is a question, ontology just means about your being. It's asking about the nature or being of things. 
So the Bible says, ask that question, but it also then says, you need to ask a purpose question. What is this thing for? What is sex for? What is my body for? What's its purpose? What, why am I, a, if I'm a Christian, what is my purpose as a Christian person? We need to answer those sort of questions, the nature and purpose questions, if we want to then answer the ethical question. What, in this case, what is appropriate, helpful, right when it comes to sex? What's good sex and bad sex? Okay, so now that we've got sort of a bit of a framework there, and you can use that framework for any ethical question, right? It's a framework that I'm drawing out of the Christian scriptures, saying these are the sort of questions the Bible encourages you to ask, so you can apply this ethical framework very broadly. Okay, but now we need to go and say, well, what is actually going on here when it comes to sex? Uh, now, if you're not a Christian person, by the way, and you're here today, this, is, this gives you a really great opportunity to get a little window into why Christians think what they do about sex. You may not agree with it all, but it will hopefully give you a good insight into why Christians say what they say about sex. And I'd love to hear your questions afterwards. Okay, so now we've got the framework. Let's rip into the passage. Um, and as I said, I think Paul gives eight different sort of reasons in this passage. Some we're going to cover really quickly, some we need to reflect on a bit more. Eight different reasons which come in about four groups. But the first group has two, the next group has four, and the last two groups only have one each. But anyway, it adds up to eight. I, I did a maths degree. Anyway, you can trust me. All right, first, so why should Christians, according to this passage, flee pornea, any sort of prohibited sexual relationship, and instead glorify God with their body. Okay, so the first section is verses 9 to 11. If you've got a Bible there, it would be really helpful at this point to have it open. Or maybe you can look on with a person next to you on your phone. And I've just given it a little heading here, the won't and the washed, to try to sort of remember it. The won't and the rock washed. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First of all, we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. And this is the won't. That is Paul's, Paul's reason here of why you should flee pornea and glorify God with your body, is he says, those who continue in pornea, sexual immorality, they won't enter the kingdom of God. If you continue in this, he says, you won't enter the kingdom of God. Have a look, verses 9 and 10. He says, or do you not know, and remember he's writing to Christians, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, that's the pornea word, nor idolaters, nor uh, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's just got a very straightforward message. If you live like this, then you, you know the word of God. You won't inherit, you won't be part of God's promised kingdom. Now, is he saying, oh, I did get drunk at that party, uh, that's it, I'm game over, one strike, you're out, zero tolerance policy here. No, that's not what he's saying. I'm going to show you why in a second. What he's talking about is those who continue in this behaviour. Because the Christian response to sin in my own life and sin in your own, your own life is repentance. We don't pretend we're perfect, but when we do sin, which we all do, because of the work of God in our lives, what we want to do is repent and turn away from that and come back to God. And so we won't live in continual patterns of this sort of sinful sexual behaviour. We won't give ourselves over to it. 
Those who continue in pornea, he says, they won't enter the kingdom of God. So there's a salient warning there. And in particular, he says, don't be deceived. Why would Christians be deceived about this? It's because Christians think, you know what? Because Jesus died for me on the cross, I know I can be forgiven. I, I know that whatever I've done in my past, I can be forgiven. That's true, isn't it? So you, a Christian could sort of twist that a little bit and go, it's sort of like I've got a get out of sin for free card that whenever I sin, Jesus already died for it, I can, I can do whatever I like. I can do whatever I like, it's all going to be covered by Jesus. Paul says, don't be deceived. If you persist in this sort of sinful behaviour, if, this, if you, you're just unrepentant about this sort of behaviour, you won't be part of the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Forgiveness is no licence to, to, to sin with abandon. So that's the first thing, that's the won't. But then the second, um, second reason he gives here are the washed, the washed. He says, you have, because you've become a Christian, you've been transformed in Jesus and the Spirit. Have a look in verse 11. He says, and such were some of you. That's right, clearly it can't be a, well, you did it once, you're out of the kingdom of God, because he says, this is, the, this is what some of you used to be like. You used to have this sort of life, characterised by this sort of behaviour. That's what some of you were, he says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He's talking about the astounding transformation that takes place when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you realise your need for forgiveness and life from him and you turn back to him in confession and faith, and a remarkable transformation takes place. Not, not because of your awesomeness, it's because of Jesus' awesomeness. Not because of all the things you can now do, it's because of what he has done for you on the cross and what he will do in you by his spirit. What does he do? You are, you are washed. That is all that behaviour, all that sinful stuff that stained your person, that stained your character, that stained your heart... You, that is all washed away by Jesus' sacrifice of himself. You have been sanctified. So rather than being somebody who was alienated from God, you have been now made special, holy, set apart by God. He's drawn you to himself, made you his own. Those who will inherit the kingdom of God, that's what he's done for you. And you've been justified. Now, the word justified is actually exactly the same in the original as the word righteous. So you could just say, remember he said, no one who is unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying, but you have been righteousified. You've been given right standing with God because of Jesus. This is who you are. You are now blameless. There is no condemnation for you. Why? Because you're perfectly awesome? No, because of Jesus and the forgiveness that is now yours. This is the amazing transformation that takes place when someone becomes a Christian on the basis of what Jesus has done and the work of his spirit. You are washed, you are sanctified and you are justified before God. He says, so because of those things he's saying, why give yourself over to a life of pornea or any other sin? You've got to remember the great transformation that he's worked in your life. Okay, so that's the, the won't and the washed. Next little section where we get four reasons to flee pornea and glorify God with our body is I've uh, just given a little heading, dodgy, 
Corinthian freedom, design and destruction theology. Now, he's writing to a bunch of Christians, right? They think they understand Christian truth and they think they've worked it all out, but their theology is decidedly dodgy. And what happens here is it appears, if you read chapters 5 and 6, it appears that we know Paul planted the church in Corinth and then he went, moved on to do other church plants, right? At some point he wrote a letter to them which we do not have. We'll call it, instead of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, we'll call it 0 Corinthians, right? He wrote 0 Corinthians to them. We don't have that letter. It seems that they wrote back to him in some sort of response. And now he's writing back to them again um, in what we have as 1 Corinthians and he quotes back to them some of the stuff they wrote to him. That's why if you look there in your Bible, you know, from verses 12 and 13, there's some, you know, quotation marks there. He's quoting back, it seems, their letter, all right? So let's uh, go through some of the, I say, four reasons in this little section, Uh, some of them really quick. The The third reason, first in this section, is that porneia is not beneficial, he says. The reason you should flee from it is this sexual immorality is just not beneficial. Beginning of verse 12. He quotes them, all things are lawful for me. Why would they say that? It's because they know they are a Christian and because they're now in Christ, they're set free from all the Old Testament law. They're now saying everything is okay now. Everything is lawful for me. I can do whatever I like. There is nothing holding me back because I I have it all in Jesus. That's their theology, right? How does Paul respond to that? There in verse 12, he says, yeah, but not all things are beneficial. That is, you might think that you have unbounded freedom, but he says that's not true, actually. There are bounds that God places for our benefit on our freedom in Christ. God-given bounds. It respects the nature and the purpose that, for which he intends on the different things that we're looking at. So he says, well, there's a good reason here. Porneia is not beneficial. That's why you should run away from it. It's not necessarily beneficial. Let's move on to the next reason in this section. Uh, is that porneia can master you if you're not careful, if you're not on guard. It can become your master and that's a bad thing. Uh, still there in verse 12, second half, he quotes the same thing again. He says, all things are lawful for me, so you say, but his response is, but I will not be enslaved by anything. That his point here is that actually there is a way in which in celebrating your freedom, engaging in all sorts of behaviour, you actually become a slave to sin. Uh, Paul talks about this elsewhere in the New Testament. In uh, Romans chapter 6 he says this, he says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Right? When you give yourself to something to obey it, you're making yourself a slave to it. And he says you have a choice. We either do it and make ourselves slaves to sin, which leads to death, or slaves to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Point being, you can become a slave to porneia, to sexual immorality. And maybe some of you know that. Not up here, but you know it in your life. That slavery to sexual immorality. Maybe it's a particular sexual relationship that because you're a Christian, you know you should give it up, but you, you just don't seem to be able to or don't really want to. 
Or maybe it's pornography, which you're just addicted to. Or maybe it's just you know, with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, and just your, the way you express intimacy with one another has sort of gone further than maybe you feel your conscience says you're comfortable with, but you just seems too hard to pull out. Right. Pornaya can master you. And Paul says, I will not be enslaved by sin. And he says clearly in, our, in the book of Romans, actually, that there's no need for you to be enslaved to sin if you've come to faith in Jesus. And uh, so who will free you from that sort of slavery? Paul says in Romans chapter 6, he says, thanks be to God because you've been set free now from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Okay, so that's, a, that's another reason he gives this. Pornea can master you, but you've got to watch out for that. So there's you run away from it. And then he moves on to the next part of their theology. Pornea is not what you have been designed for. It's not what you've been designed for. See, if you look there um, in verse 13, it seems that the Corinthians sort of thought that, well, we were designed for sex, so surely it's all good. You'll see there verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach, they say, and the stomach for food. What? what, what? <laughs> How's this about sex? When they're just saying, look, it's an argument by design. You get hunger pains and God has provided food in the world. The stomach is clearly designed for food and food is clearly designed not just to look at, it's to eat. The stomach is an argument from design. Well, let's apply this to the human body. Here is the human form. Look at it. It is clearly designed for sex. And sex is great pleasure for the body. So clearly sex is for the body, the body is for sex. This is how God has intended things. Not a bad piece of sort of undergraduate theology, I guess. <laughs> what does Paul have to say? Have a look there in verse 13. Second half of verse 13, he says, No, the body is not meant for porneia. He's talking about purpose here, right? Design, he's talking about nature and purpose. The body is not meant for porneia, sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He's saying, you've joined the wrong dots. You were joining genitalia and thinking that's the most profound sort of thing you can say. He's saying, no, no, there's a much more profound thing going on. The human body, in particular as someone who's now come to Jesus in faith, the human, my body is for him. And he is for my body. So it's completely sort of rethinking, I guess, um, what is the human body of a Christian really designed for and, for and purposed for? It's for a relationship with the Lord Jesus and bringing honour to the Lord Jesus. Well, and then the last bit of their dodgy theology um, is also there in 13 and 14, and it's this. That the, the reason you should flee porneia is because our bodies, like what, what we do with our bodies now matters to God. It matters to God now and in the future. Have a look there in verse 13 and 14. Halfway through verse 13, I think Paul at this point is still quoting the Corinthians when he says, and God will destroy both one and the other. I think that's part of their dodgy destruction theology. They're going, look, uh, the body is clearly designed for sex, but anyway, we all know that when Jesus comes back, it's all going to get destroyed anyway. seems that they were very strongly influenced you know, by Greek philosophical ideas, given that the Corinth is a town in Greece, 
which is actually about the future, will surely be not, not physical, not bodily future. It must be some sort of spiritual future because the body's bad but the spirit is good. It seems that they'd imbibe that sort of view and taken that into their Christian faith. Well, if you know the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll know that the, the high point of the whole argument in 1 Corinthians is chapter 15, which is all about the future and how the future for Christians is a bodied future. It's a physical resurrection that we look forward to, just as Jesus has been physically raised now. And you get a little bit of that right here, early on in verse 14, when Paul says, and God raised the Lord, talking about Jesus, and will also raise us up by his power. That is, he's saying, it's going to be a bodily future. Our bodies, the material world, the stuff of creation matters to God, both now and in the future. This idea that it doesn't matter what I do with my body now because it's somehow going to be a spiritual existence, he says it's rubbish. It's rubbish. What we do with our bodies matters both now and in the future. Okay, so they're the first six reasons that he's given. Um, Let's move on then to the third section of this little bit. Uh, Sex and glued to who? Sex and glued to who? Uh, This is his seventh reason uh, and this is what he says. He says basically porneia, sexual immorality, rips you away from Jesus and it glues you to someone else. So let's have a look at uh, what he says here in verses 15 to 17. Do you not know, he says, and Paul's getting a bit more impassioned here, right, as he goes along. You know, he's, he's sort of engaged with their theology and etc, etc, but now you notice he repeats himself by saying, do, do you not know, like, haven't you got this? This is like, this is sort of pretty central, basic sort of stuff. He's sort of exasperated, I think, tearing out his hair over them. Come on, you should know this. Do you not know, he says, that your bodies are members of Christ. Now just think about that for a moment. If you're a Christian person, our bodies are members, parts of Christ. He's saying Rowan's physical body, Matt's physical body, your physical body if you're a Christian, it's like you are a part of Jesus' body. I like to think of myself as the little toenail. (laughs) I'm, I'm sure you would be something much more profound prostate or the <laughs> pituitary gland or... I, I, I actually don't know any biology. I've run out of body parts. Um, but <laughs> Arms. There's one. Arms. You Maybe you're an arm. There's a body part. Um, this is actually quite a profound thing to say. My body, my physical body is a part of Jesus' corporate body. And what he then says is, still there in verse 15, should I then take away the members of Christ, that is a part of Jesus' body, and make them members of a prostitute? Now why is he picking on prostitution here? Probably because it was fairly rife in Corinth. Uh, It was part of sort of just the way they celebrated good times. That is, you know, you might put on a feast for your neighbours and it may involve some sort of um, uh, st- stuff that had been offered in the temple or something like that and then after, you know, as part of dessert you sort of bring in the prostitutes for all the male sort of dinner guests and that's just... And, and the Christians who are invited to feasts with their neighbours, they go and do, oh, I'm free in Christ, you know, it doesn't matter what I do with my body anyway. 
thanks very much. And he, he's saying, is, should I take, um, take away part of the members, uh, members of Christ and unite them, make them members of a prostitute? Never, he says, never. He's horrified by the idea. Now, you can sort of imagine the Corinthians going, well, come on, mate, it's just, um, it's just sex. Like, it's, it's, it's over in a, not a very long period of time. It's just sex. Like, it's not... A, you're making too big a deal of this, aren't you? And he actually responds with, a, with another, or don't you know? He says, or don't you know that the one joined to a prostitute, and he's only just picking on prostitution as one example of any sort of prohibited sexual relationship, right? So you could just substitute, really, you know, sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend or adultery or homosexual sex or any other sort of sort of pornea. Do you not know, he says, that the one joined to a prostitute is one body with her? Now, the word joined is actually the word from which they get the word glue. The one glued to a prostitute is one body with her. Not just talking about, well, yeah, when there's sex, there's two bodies that come together in a sort of oneness. Like, he's not just talking about the physical thing. He's saying something much more, much more profound about what sex does. I can see that because in the very next thing he says is, for, he quotes then Genesis, for it says the two will become one flesh. In Genesis, that's talking about one family, one kin. When husband and wife come together in a marriage relationship and they come, to, they come together to make a new family unit, the oneness is not just a momentary physical oneness. It's a profound, relational, emotional oneness and sex is part of that. That's the way God has designed it to be. The way God has designed sex is so that when you have sex with somebody, it's it's not actually just a physical coming together. There is a profound emotional and relational connection that sex itself is both the expression of and builds. Sex has this amazing function under God's plan for building commitment and intimacy with a person. At the same time, it's expressing that intimacy with that person. Now, the thing is... If you don't have a lifelong commitment to the other person, think about what you're doing. As you come together and have sex with that person, you're building all this emotional and relational intimacy and then she dumps you. Right. Start all over again. You meet somebody, you start sleeping together, you're building emotional, relational intimacy through sex and then you dump her. The pain of it, as much as we tell ourselves, oh, no, no, like it's, everyone's doing it, it's just normal, it's just how it's meant to be. Actually, it's not how it's meant to be. How it's meant to be is that the commitment, the lifelong commitment that I've made to my wife, that she's made to me, that frames the sexual expression and, and frames the sexual uh, building of intimacy. It makes it a safe place for that because the commitment is, is the foundation, the framework in which the sex makes sense, which it does great things for that commitment. But you know what? You can't substitute sex for the commitment and sex without the commitment 
just ends up hurting a lot in the end. So I think he's saying some quite profound things in this little section about sex and glued to who. And then I'll finish up. Um, The final thing he says, the final reasons, the final section here of sex, sin and the spirit, sinning against God's temple. Uh, His point here is that porneia desecrates God's temple. What's God's temple? He says here, God's temple is your body because the Holy Spirit is has come and live within you as a Christian person. If you like, if you want an analogy, it's like the one true living God has entered the Sydney property market. Now, I know at the moment you don't care about the Sydney property market. That's just because you're living in your parents' property, right? But because you will be so infected by the world, even if you're a Christian person, once you get out and you get a job you will start caring deeply, like every other four million people in Sydney, about the Sydney property market. Why? Because you will want in on that market. And you'll want to start getting a good house in a nice place with nice schools and you know, no unsavoury characters. All that sort of stuff. You, you will go that way. Why? Because you are more middle class than Christian. Okay? Right? Just be honest with it. All right. But God has entered the Sydney property market. God, the one true God, is looking for somewhere to live in Sydney. And do you know where he's chosen? He went to a complete dive. He went to you. He bought you. It says in this passage, you have been bought at a price. What was the price of buying you? The death of his son, Jesus. He bought you so that he could come and live in you by his spirit. You, if you're in Christ, are the temple of the living God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He has come to live in you. That's why Paul says, flee porneia. Don't desecrate God's dwelling place. Honour God. Glorify God with your body because he's come to live in you. Okay, well, we've come to the end. Uh, Just some quick pastoral responses. Uh, This, as I said, is not about some morality that we want to impose on the university. This is not for you to go and sort of browbeat your friends who don't know Jesus on how they should live when it comes to sex. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? God judges those outside the church. This is actually about recognising what God has done for us in Jesus and in his spirit. It's about grasping our transformed identity and living it out. And, and in some ways this is straightforward and hard. It's straightforward because it's pretty clear we should flee pornea and glorify God with our body. But let me tell you, it's hard to live that way, isn't it? That is a hard task. So some words of encouragement for you before I sit down. First of all, if you are a Christian and you are presently caught in some sort of pornea where you feel like it is, you are letting it be master over you, you need to know some things. You need to know, first of all, God loves you. God cares about you and he cares about your holiness He cares more than you know about you. Just look at the cross of Jesus. You were bought at a great price. So please heed his warnings in this passage and please, in the power of his spirit, living within you, repent. 
Come back to God. If you want to know what it looks like to repent, five R's that you can think about that will help you. First of all, recognise that what you've done is wrong. Recognise that it's wrong. Secondly, renounce that way of life as an appropriate way of life for you as God's holy person in Christ Jesus. Renounce it. Thirdly, receive his forgiveness. Right? He wants to lavish forgiveness and grace on you in Jesus. Receive his forgiveness. Fourthly, resolve in the power of his spirit to don't, to don't give way to temptation again. Put to death the misdeeds of the body in the power of the spirit. Resolve to live for him from here. And fifthly, repair what damage has been done as far as you are able. Repair what damage has been done as far as you are able. Flee Ponea, glorify God with your body. If you are a Christian person and you've sinned in the past and you've repented of it, I just want to remind you that you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified. Don't be burdened down by guilt by the past if you've actually repented and come back to Christ. Right? Jesus has died as the guilty one in your place. You've been washed, sanctified and justified. Praise God for that. And if you're not a Christian person and you're listening to some of this today and you're saying, well, you know what? I've got a lot of mess in my life. I've got a lot of pain when it comes to sex in my life. I've got a lot of stains on my life. Like, could I really, could I be free of that? Could I really be what? Yes, you can. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Receive his grace and mercy and repent and come back to him. And if you struggle in this area, and I guess I'm talking to, well, just me, because none of you would struggle in this area, I'm sure. No, I'm talking to all of us. When you struggle in this area... Remember the promise that comes in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which we'll get to in a few weeks' time, which I hold on to this verse. God is faithful, it says. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. Well, I pray that God would strengthen us all to live for him and glorify him in our body. Okay, any questions you have you'd like to share? Thank you. Great question. In terms of practical sort of advice for Christian dating, so I'm just going to assume that you're talking about a Christian dating Christian. Um, what sort of things, practical advice we give to sort of so you don't live with regrets? Okay, well, I've got a couple of thoughts here. One is, too often I see guys, Christian guys, absolving themselves of responsibility because they think they're like some sort of uncontrollable bag of hormones. Right? And so they sort of they think it's, they leave it up to women to control the sexual behaviour of, of the couple. That's just wussy and weak. So man up, take responsibility, live your life in front of the Lord Jesus. Yeah? So that's number one. Number two, the place for sexual expression is within a committed relationship. Right? Nature and purpose. What is, the, what is the purpose of sexual intimacy? The purpose of sexual intimacy, according to the Bible, I take it, is actually to express the commitment, to reinforce the commitment and, and to strengthen it. That's the place of sexual... All right? Now, if that's right, what sort of commitment is there when you're dating? I'll give you the answer. Basically, none. The only commitment in dating is probably I won't date someone else the same time I'm dating you. 
and maybe the commitment of, I will treat you in a way that's honouring to you and honouring to the Lord Jesus. Right? A, a basic Christian commitment that you'd have to anyone. But is there an actual commitment to make this relationship last? That this relationship will be to death? No, no, there's not. Not if you're dating. If you've made the commitment to stick with each other to death, then you've actually decided to get married and you should just get married. But I think actually dating, and this is not a common view, I, I, but I, I think we overestimate the commitment of dating. And consequently, we overestimate how appropriate sexual intimacy is. And that's what ties us up in knots. That's what really stuffs us up. So reevaluate just how, commitment, how much commitment is there in, in dating. And think about it not with your hormones. Oh, I, I love her. I'm so, yeah, there's heaps of commitment. <laughs> you know, not like that. That's, that's your hormone speaking, not your head. Realistically, how, you're just dating. There's almost no commitment long term, right? It's, just, it's, it's for the now, which is right and fine and okay. But if that's the case, then why are you being sexually intimate? Time for one more question? Yeah. I think uh, it's the a parallel thing. He says, your body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. I think that saying that the, the, my body is to... Uh, it's like he says right at the end of the passage where he says, verse 20, therefore honour God with your body. So I think saying my body, the, it, its purpose as a Christian is to bring honour to God, bring honour to Jesus the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. That is, part of Jesus' purpose, part of, what he, part of his intent, his goal, is, our, is to bless the body, to bless us, to strengthen us. Um, elsewhere in the New Testament, it talks about how Christ is being made head of, over all things for the church. There's a sense in which what Jesus is on about is actually for our good. Um, so I think that might be what he's trying to suggest there.